0: My name is Felicia Gaddis, and welcome to Ichthos. In this podcast, I will speak with artists, educators, thinkers, and ordinary people about how we define sacred in the 21st century. As a believer in Christ, I believe it is more important now than ever before to understand how our faith is evolving, but also to understand and find common ground with individuals of other faiths, as well as those who don't believe at all, in order to renegotiate our social contract for this new millennia. Is God Dead? This was the cover of Time magazine on April 8, 1966. It is one of the most iconic covers of the 20th century, and it asks a question that most Americans at that time would have considered blasphemy. Was the God that they grew up with and believed in and loved, the God of their fathers, gone? Had God ever been real? It was Time magazine's first cover to include only text. The words were so controversial that no other image was needed. This cover caused a firestorm of angry sermons and letters to the editor and marked a moment of transition in the American psyche that we are still reeling from to this day. According to Time Magazine, 97% of Americans believed in God in 1966, which means that only 3% of the population were religiously non-affiliated. This group includes atheists, agnostics, and the uncertain. Now compare that with the findings from a 2019 telephone survey conducted by the Pew Research Center, which found that 26% of Americans consider themselves religiously non-affiliated, also known as nuns, with 4% self-classifying as atheists, 5 as agnostics, and 17% describing themselves as nothing in particular. In today's episode of ICTHOS, I have a conversation with Bruce Letowitz, professor of law at Duquesne University School of Law. Professor Letowitz is an Adrian Kahn endowed chair in scholarly excellence, specializing in constitutional law, religion and law, and the secular. He is also the founder of the Allegheny County Death Penalty Project, host of the podcast Bends Towards Justice, and the author of the 2009 book, Hallowed Secularism, Theory, Belief, and Practice. His forthcoming book, The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life, explores the possibility of healing and restoration for America after the perceived death of God. I first became aware of Professor Ledowitz while aimlessly perusing my library and found an old issue of Tacoon Magazine from 2010. Ledowitz had an article in that magazine entitled, The Future of God and Secularism, which discussed the rise and character of secularism in the 21st century. Not being a fan of our nation's newfound love affair with secularism, I was intrigued and wanted to find out more about the topic and the author. What I found was a scholarly, non-affiliated, non-believer who was mourning what he believes is the death of God for himself and the nation. He is searching for ways to navigate this new cultural terrain with compassion, reverence, and a sincere desire for what he calls holy community. I first became aware of you by reading an article you wrote in uh, Tukun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really weird because I don't have a subscription. That is the only copy I had. <laughs> and I was just perusing stuff in my library and picked it up. And there was the article. So, I I was looking at it and I found it really interesting because I have been wrestling myself, but I believe the nation has been wrestling with the change that's taking place now here in this country with regard to our perception of spirituality, Christianity, um, atheism. All of these things are really beginning to come to a head i believe here in Uh this and it's causing us to rethink how we interact with each other and what we individually or collectively actually agree upon as being sacred in the Uh past pre-1950s pre the god is dead idea or concept coming out we had an understanding whether you believed or not we had an understanding of things that were sacrosanct within our society. Mm-hmm. And now that image or that idea is changing. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think the problem is it's disappearing altogether. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. uh, there was a, a marvelous um, column that appeared uh, Thomas Friedman's column in the New York times. And he was quoting a, um, uh, a philosopher, political religious philosopher, Moshe Habertal, who is at Hebrew University and also at NYU Law School, and and um, Friedman was uh, quoting him to the effect that if the sacred disappears, then everything becomes politics, and then politics is ended. Uh, that there has to be something real outside the the realm of power, the realm of getting things, the realm of materialism. If there's nothing outside of that, then then You know, life descends into chaos, which is, of course, exactly what it's doing. So, uh, but it was a little short on how we recover that. That's, you know, that's the difficulty.
0: And you've been talking about that as well. Um, How do you feel we can recover that? Do you feel we can recover that?
1: Well, I don't think we can go back. I mean, uh, I'm a a person who uh, grew up in Orthodox Judaism. And I left Judaism um because I no longer believe in God, um in the in the God of Orthodox Judaism anyway. And um so and I don't feel I could go back. It's no longer plausible for me to believe in that kind of God concept. And I think probably a lot of people are in my, my shoes.
0: Define for me what you believe that God concept is.
1: I think that, um, you know, to be simplistic about it, it's the matter of the supernatural. That it's the, the normal causal relations in nature are, are, cannot be interrupted. They, they, they just are, they're the, they're the rules and that they operate and they always operate and nothing can interfere with them. So where the New Testament says even the, the winds obey him, uh, no, there's that, that's, that's where unfortunately, I had to um stop because I no longer could believe that
0: so now, you believe in the the watchmaker idea of it that there was something set in motion and it's been left, and that that's it
1: well i believe, yes in um except of course, for the watchmaker, but something started that's true with the big bang, and it's in operation, but um I don't mean the deist idea that okay. there is a God. God created all this and now God watches from afar. I always found that to be equally implausible because, after all, a God who could create all this, why would such a God then be indifferent? So I, I always thought the deists were a, a strange halfway house.
0: Okay. Tell me about what you call in your book, um, in, in that article as well, um, Atheism 3.0. What
1: right. is that? Well, see, I, I, that you're referring to, Howard, secularism, a book that I wrote in 2009. Right. And in 2009, there was a lot of ferment around secularism. the The new atheist wave had just crashed into society. Suddenly, all these people were liberated, like like me, were liberated to be non-believers or if you prefer, non-affiliated. I I I don't like the term atheist. Uh, because it's a negative term, you know, it, it's better to talk about what we believe in than what we don't believe in. So, uh, like John Dewey, John Dewey did not believe in the traditional conception of God, but he never called himself an atheist and he used the term God all the time. Um, because he thought that, that only by the use of the term God, could we really uh, reach out to something sacred, to something beyond the everyday. So, um, when, when that, um, wave crashed and people were suddenly liberated to be atheists, then there was a lot of ferment about what that meant. Unfortunately, my, my book, Hallowed Secularism, had absolutely no impact whatsoever. Although I, I invite people to read my blog, Hallowed Secularism. Um, Great blog!
2: <laughs> there,
1: there, there won't be any waiting line to, uh, read it. Um. All those efforts, and I refer to several of those efforts in hallowed secularism, but I think all those efforts petered out. And now we have the the, the consequences of the loss of belief in God without any of the benefits. So we're not believers, and, and all that happened was we gradually came not to believe in anything. And we're left now with not believing in truth, not believing in objectivity. Everything is a perspective. Everything is your opinion and my opinion, and you cannot build a civilization on that. And w- what's really funny is that people blame President Trump for the death of truth, whereas the death of truth died before he came on the scene. That's why he came on the scene. In fact, yes, I believe that's why he came on, the, yeah. was able to come on the scene. And uh, and that's why he can talk the way he does. And, and I I. I I don't like president trump it's true, but i'm I'm not a an anti trump person uh, He has a, a lot of talent and he's done some good things, some good things, but in any event um he's not responsible for the disaster that we're in um and and after he's gone, whether that's this November or four years from now, after he's gone, we'll still have the same disaster and unlike the virus, there's no vaccine for this
0: mm. That's a pretty grim image that you're painting right now.
1: Yes, although it's only you know, as as you know, uh, we've talked about. I'm working on a new book for Oxford University Press. The universe is on our side. Right. And I I believe that there that it it is possible to recapture uh, a sense of the sacred. Okay. Uh, not that that will be easy to do, but I but I think it is possible to do
0: you talk in your book in how secularism about objective
1: untruthfulness what is that well it it can, it operates on two different levels now um at the level i was talking about it in the book it was the objective untruthfulness of communism that led to its downfall that was the view of the speaker who came up with that term um and you probably you you're too young to remember the old joke uh, the communist worker Says uh, to the re- to the reporter from the West who comes to the Soviet Union and and asks about working conditions, and the worker says it's very simple: we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. <laughs> That's the objective untruthfulness of communism. Okay, and uh, and that operates on a on a kind of simple level. Um, on a more profound level. Um, the uh, 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 the claim is that there is an objective untruthfulness about a a, a an institution like chattel slavery, which mm. has to operate on a fundamental lie of human nature. It has to pretend that uh, black people or whoever the slaves are, it has to pretend that they're not fully human. Right. And and that is objectively untrue. There is such a thing as objectively untrue. That is not a matter of opinion. It's objectively untrue, and the system depends on that untruth.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, this nation got a start on that objective untruth, and it's it's sad because faith was the only thing that got us out of that.
1: It was. That's right. right. It was. It's the
0: faith of the people who believed in Christian values. And said that there was a standard by which we need to treat our fellow man. And that's what got us out of that. But if you're saying we can't go back to that, then how do we get us out of this now?
1: Well, we have to discover other senses of objectivity. Okay. And and that's not easy to do, but it's not impossible either. I mean, I, I believe... And uh, you know this is a discussion for another day. But I, I believe that this requires a, a, a serious uh, look at the nature of the universe. I mean, we we have to um, engage in a collective investigation of what the universe is like without preconceptions. Right now, our nihilism, you know, which is what we've been describing, our nihilism is a reflex. It's not that we really thought about it. It's not that we really live by the idea that everything is opinion. Um, it's just that we assume that that's all that's possible because we are stuck with materialism as our ontology of what is real. We're stuck with the senses as our epistemology. Um, and I suggest in the book that, you know, process philosophy, Alfred North Whitehead is a, is a possible way out of that. But even there are many possible ways out of that. Um, we have to start with the recognition that we have sort of drifted into nihilism. And that is, wh- is what we have to stop. We have to confront all nihilist statements. Every time a friend of yours says, well, that's just your opinion, mm-hmm. you have to stop and say, now wait, do you really mean that? You know, are you saying that simply that I'm wrong, which is certainly possible, or do you really mean that the statements like compassion is better than cruelty are just a matter of opinion. Right. Does the universe have any character at all? Do humans have any character at all? Um, all these uh, anti-foundation people, they, they pretend that, that there's no such thing as a human being. But, you know, we're not cats. We're not canines. We are hominids. There are all sorts of, of objective things you can say. There are all kinds of foundations you can lay for a settled human life. And you can reason about good and evil um, just because we disagree. You know, in the 1850s, people disagreed about slavery and there were sincere slaveholders. History showed they were wrong. And so there's another standard. History itself is a standard. You know, Dr. King knew that, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Well, that's what he believed. That's what Gandhi believed. These were not these were not um, uh, simple idealists. They were not simpletons. No, they, had, they were men of faith. And and yet they could affirm that There's nothing prevents us from affirming these things. As I say, we've we've kind of just lost our self confidence. And and Nietzsche knew that would happen with the death of God. It, you know, it is said. Now, the death of God was easy, but it will take a thousand years to bury him. (laughs) We're still still relying on a God-shaped universe, but now we think that's empty. Mm. And we have to start over.
0: I have a question about that. That whole, I mean, to be honest, I went through a period when I was in college where I tried to become an atheist. It was momentary. It was kind of like the flu. I got over it. But um, one of the reasons I didn't go there, I I mean, I had taken a philosophy class. I was reading Socrates, and he sounded a lot like Christ. And I was like, well, you know, maybe we don't need this. But the reason I didn't continue in that path is because of that God-shaped thing that you were talking about. I was looking at history and seeing that just about every civilization had come up with a God concept.
2: Mm hmm yes.
0: And my my thinking is, if everybody is thinking it on some level, on some space, then it must be. And even if it isn't, first of all, there's no way for us to know if there isn't, but we need it. We need that space. We need something to fill that space. It's in our makeup. We're hardwired for it. So how then do you reform a society or your concept of society on a foundation without that base?
1: Um, I, I think that at the level you're talking about, you know, what we're hardwired for, I think that we're hardwired for significance. That is, we're, we're hardwired to see, um, or um, uh, what this is what I say in how secularism, we're we're hardwired to live in moral consequences. We we know that the thing is right and wrong, and and one of the problems that atheists always have, the, the you know the thinkers of atheism like Chris Hitchens, they always have the problem, and they acknowledge it that people keep thinking about objective right and wrong, even though they shouldn't, because there's no God. So I think that that's what we're hardwired for. We're hardwired to say it matters what we do. And mm-hmm. and um and there's a starting point. You know, if we're hardwired to believe that it matters what we do, then maybe it just does matter what we do. In which case, not everything is a matter of opinion and values are not all human constructs. We may have to proceed in baby steps and not argue about God directly, but rather see where we can actually agree and where we can expose nihilism as objectively untrue. But, I mean, that won't take me, or maybe it would take a lifetime to get to the question of God directly you'd be proceeding in small steps first. And I'm happy with that because um, in in the book, um, The Universe is on Our Side, I have a a last chapter about God, which is unfinished. I mean, the chapter's finished, but the question is not answered one way or the other. Right. With a question mark. You know, next steps. But you can go a long way before you get to a disagreement about God. Um, C.S. Lewis you know, the great Christian apologist mm-hmm. had had a um, he said, I am the brother of everyone in the classic tradition. So he he's he, he could accept atheists. They had to believe this, however, and he thought Socrates and of course, Socrates believed in a God. But he thought that all philosophy accepted the following proposition that human beings are a kind of thing and the universe is a kind of thing and you could reason about and experience from experience to and evidence and you know not proof but uh, argument you could reach agreement reasonable agreement about the kind of beings we are and the kind of being of thing that the universe is and he thought that if you could agree about that he didn't care whether you called yourself an atheist mm-hmm. he thought everybody who agreed with that was on one side and everybody who disagreed with that was on another side. I don't mean sides in terms of not liking each other. Right. Just, you know, one point of view is this and the other point of view is that. Now I believe that if you, if you take that seriously and begin to question about that, you'll find that almost everybody is on the same side.
2: Hmm.
1: Um I, I listened to on being Krista Tippett's um, right. show. And very often, there will be a a guest on her show, and and that person will be talking about truth, or right, or the good, or the beautiful. And then they will become embarrassed and self-conscious and say, well, you know, I'm not sure you can say that anymore. We have to get past that. We have to get past the point where people are self-conscious about saying there is such a thing as right and wrong. But see, then
0: you have to also get past the factual as well. I mean, it's, 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 or the provable, I should say, because when you start talking about good, that can be very subjective. When you start talking about what is beautiful, that is definitely subjective. So in, in, in doing that, you take away this objective truth. So how, how do you address that?
1: Yeah, I don't agree with you that, um, that goodness and, and beauty are um, subjective. Okay. Now, certainly, they, the standards are influenced by the, the particular culture in which you live. Absolutely. A person living in Japan has a, a, a somewhat different starting point on beauty than a person living in the West, for example, because right. they're, not, they're not experienced in the same ways. Right. There are plenty of people in the West. Who think that uh, beautiful Japanese music is in fact beautiful, and there are plenty of people in Japan who think that jazz is great. So no, I, I think actually the objectivity of beauty is is it demonstrates the objectivity of that the fact that Mozart is revered all over the place mm-hmm. is, is a very good example of the objectivity of beauty. Okay. Um, again, I. I we, where you have to stop, though, is is there are certain things we don't know yet. So you know, this doesn't tell us, you know, it, 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 we still have disagreements about whether gay marriage is right or wrong. You know, we still have lots of disagreements. And in fact, on a lot of issues, it's like slavery was in the 1850s. People were making arguments. Right. Society was not yet convinced yet there was a right and wrong to it. Right. That's the situation that you're always in. You're always in race media. You're always in the middle. And so we're arguing about um, gay marriage. We're arguing about the rights of women. We're arguing about transgender. We're arguing about free trade. We're arguing about the tax rate. We're arguing about everything. That's that, but it's very important in the midst of all those arguments for both sides to agree that someone is more right and somebody is less right.
0: So is your your solution to this to continue the argument until we can come to,
1: we can convince the other side? Well, no, you don't, no. I'm not sure you convinced. Um, oh, I think it's very important though to start with the idea before you get to disagreements. You have to start with the idea is there an objective, true standard in things? Okay. Because if you start there, then not everything depends on you. Let, let's say you're in the middle of this argument and you begin to think that your opponent might be right about something. Now, the question is, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Now, in politics, how we feel about that is a disaster. Absolutely. <laughs> and you could never admit it. You have to double down And even though you're beginning to think that maybe your opponent is slightly right, you can't say anything like that. We know that's how politics works.
0: Well, it hasn't always worked like that. I don't believe that it always has. So why is it working like that now?
1: It's working like that now because we don't start with the proposition that there is actually an objective standard. Um, Dr. King never talked about persuading people. He talked about converting them. Right. Right. And what he meant was, of course, he came out of the Christian tradition, but right. what he also, he also meant that the person he was debating or the person who thought he was his opponent would be better off with the truth. And that's has to be the starting point. If you convince me that I'm wrong, I am better off. Okay. Now, I, I write a column in the pennsylvania capital star which is an online newspaper here in in, uh, pennsylvania and i wrote in a column a few um, weeks ago about some particular issue that i changed my mind and my daughter read that and she and she emailed me and she said i can't remember reading that in print anytime recently (laughs) I, i changed my mind right but that i mean that. Shows you, I mean, scientists change their minds. All the time. If the evidence, you know, shows. yeah. So we have to get back to the point where if I'm proven wrong, I understand that I'm better off. But that's only true in a universe that has an objective foundation.
0: You talk in your book about, and you make a statement, that truth is not a religious category. Right. Can you expound on that?
1: Well, I guess I, I really should have said that uh, truth as a category is available to non-affiliated as well. Um, people are not affiliated with organized religion. That is, um, the, of course, religion has the concept of truth and, and, and the truth shall make you free, in fact. Right. Um, I only meant that this is a category also open to people who see themselves as not religious. That And that's what's important, that okay. we. When we talk about truth, we're not smuggling in God, (laughs) you know, and and, and people are worried about that. I mean, every, you know, right now, for example, uh, public schools don't like to talk about fundamental values because they're not, they they sound religious. Now, that's interesting
0: because in, in schools in general, you have something called class norms, And these are the the rules of the class. We agreed to do this, 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 and this. You make a little social contract at the beginning of the school year. And these are our classroom norms and everybody agrees to to follow those norms. So how can you say uh, a norm is a type of truth?
1: So it it depends on whether you think the foundation of the norm is that a social contract. I don't think that it is. I think the objectivity of the norm brought forth the agreement in the first place. Okay. Example. For, and, and I use this example, I think in how it's secularism. The one way I know that there are objective standards in the universe is that a kindergarten teacher never says to the class in our culture, we take our turn, <laughs> but always says you have to take your turn. Right. That cut in, in front. Right. And C.S. Lewis once said, I don't know that much about the creator of the universe, but apparently the creator of the universe believed that you should take your turn. (laughs) culture, everywhere you go, you have to take your turn. However, that's defined in that culture. Right. So um, uh, there, suddenly, nobody's talking about opinion. You know, the, the kindergarten teacher is not saying, well, you know, we think that you should take your turn. No, of course. The kindergarten teacher presents that as objectively true, that that's how decent people behave. And there are lots of ways that decent people behave, I'm happy to say, and they are not generally culture specific. I mean, of course, they are to a certain extent. Yeah,
0: because a very powerful person in another culture walks ahead of you. Normally, most people don't say anything about that because they're a powerful person. Whereas right. in this country, we expect you, I don't care how powerful you are, get in line. So it, it, it depends on you know, how that culture perceives power and those who are on top and those who are at the bottom of the social structure.
1: Although I believe that democracy is an advance in that regard. The Tocqueville thought that Americans had discovered a truth about existence that people were equal and that that was the, the great democratic truth. And that's the great democratic truth that eventually undoes slavery, eventually undoes Jim Crow. Yes. So, um... But all of
0: that democratic truth was founded on the concept of God, though.
1: Yes. um, Unquestionably. Unquestionably. Yeah. Even if some of the framers were not themselves believers, they spoke for a culture that was. Exactly. You're absolutely right. And that's what we no longer have. But... Um, and, and if there is no way of establishing the truth of anything without God, and we don't believe in God, then, you know, that's, I I deal with that in in the new book too. Um, can you found a civilization on, on the no, the answer, no, is the universe on our side? The answer is no. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: If in fact, not only is there no God, but there are no standards, everything is chaos, Everything is up in the air. Everything is up for grabs. As as a teacher at Yale Law School said, Art Art Leff, everything is up for grabs. What if that turns out to be true about the universe? Mm. Can you found a civilization on that? And I suggest in the book that maybe you could. That's not where I end up. But I think that maybe you could. If you remember Carl Sagan and the Pale Blue Dot episode, he had... The cameras of Voyager 1, I guess it was, a Voyager 2, I don't remember now. He had the cameras turned back toward the Earth from, from Neptune. And the Earth was nothing but a pale blue dot. And then there was a voiceover. And Carl Sagan said to us, in all the vastness of space, we're alone. We only have each other. We have to discover compassion. You might be able to build a civilization that was candid, on that realization that we're alone.
2: Mm.
1: We, we'd we still be better off than we are now. See, yeah. we're just disappointed believers. You know, the death of God, we haven't gotten over it. We have to get over it in one of two ways. We have to either accept it and actually build, or we have to find an alternative to the traditional God concept that functions in a similar way. I think either path is possible, but first we have to admit, the catastrophe that the death of God was for this culture.
0: And when you say the death of God, I I have to admit, I cringe.
1: (laughs) I I teach at a Catholic law school, so lots of people cringe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I feel like that negates the experience of a lot of people who are still very much believers.
1: Absolutely. And by the way, to be fair to Friedrich Nietzsche, he knew that too. Mm-hmm. He spoke of the cult of the uh, death of God in in, um, in the Gay Science in 1882. The madman who announces the death of God is speaking to the culture, okay, to individual believers.
0: So, how do you keep a society that is experiencing this when our society, Judeo-Christian Western civilization, and many others as well? are founded on the concept of a benevolent deity of some sort or benevolence within the universe. How do you do that without going back to a state of nature that is pre-society?
1: Right. Or just, or just chaos. Well, as I, as I said before, um, there are two ways forward, Mm -hmm. but both of them require an acknowledgement that the new atheist would not give that that the that God was in fact the foundation of this society, mm-hmm. very he- healthy and important and good, right. and Western civilization was built on it. You have to start with that, and then you have to say we don't have that as a culture now, and we have to accept that that is the source of our problem.
0: Is that really true, or is it just that people are being very PC? and not wanting to ruffle feathers by stating what they truly believe. Because oh, like you said, there, there, there's a statement that, or a saying that there, there are no atheists in a foxhole. So it's, it's like, is that absolutely the truth, or are we rationalizing ourselves out of that?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that's very fair. I'm not rationalizing myself out of it. Um, I because I feel the loss of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, I had to give up. You can imagine for a Jewish person what it means to no longer be Jewish. Yeah. Uh, this and I, I, I was not raised in a secular family. Mm-hmm. It's not my background. I was yeah. big in, in, in Judaism all my life. So this was a great loss to me. Yeah. I know what it means to be stuck with the death of God. I think that's the situation of the culture. Now, if you're right, then it's simply evangelization. I mean, then I have to say the Christian church and Judaism and Islam just haven't done their job.
0: Now, that's where I'm at. (laughs) That is really where I'm at.
1: I would be very happy if that turned out the case. That would be happy. That would be a, a happy situation because then I could say to the church, don't have a problem, except that you've done a bad job. So all you need to do is preach the gospel. Stop turning Christianity into a book of laws, which Saint Paul said it was not. Exactly. So stop insisting that the first question is gay marriage,
2: hmm.
1: and introduce people to Christ. And if you do that, the death of God will disappear, and Nietzsche will just be wrong, and I will, and I will then be simply a, a wounded soul, but not a cultural problem then the death of God will be a personal problem for people like me. But that, that would be great.
0: Yeah. And my statement is that the church just needs to live it. I mean, we've got people are very much more aware, especially with all the scandals that have gone on in various churches, that people are doing one thing and presenting themselves in another way. And that dichotomy has caused many problems with the church, which I believe is why people have turned away from it. There's, There there seems to be a lack of integrity with mm-hmm. it. So you were saying just preach the gospel. My thing is just preach it and live it. Make your life that living epistle. If you do that, then we don't, people we will respect that, and that will draw people back to God. But you can't do that if you're, you know, Covering up for pedophiles, or or you're you know engaging in misogyny. You can't do that if you have all this hatred. You can't do you can't profess the love of Christ and that He is encompassing and inclusive of all. If you've got all this hatred (laughs) in your background, you have to really repent for that and turn away from it. So I'm hoping, I am praying that that is how we get past this.
1: And that's the book, The Return of the King. I don't know if you've read it. Um, 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 that's the book that, um, essentially sets that out exactly. And what I say in the, in the new book is when that book becomes the book of the culture, Mm -hmm. I just disappear. Uh, You know, we don't need me. Oh, if the culture is, is, is caught in the death of God, then that's my project. If it turns out that that's reversible, wonderful. But believe me, I would be the happiest person here because then the death of truth goes away, then we won't hate each other in politics, then the politics of Dr. King will return. You know, I mean, that that would be the, the, the most wonderful situation possible. Since with God, all things are possible, maybe that's exactly what will happen.
0: I pray that it does. <laughs>
1: But if it doesn't happen, you know, we have me to fall back on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we cover
0: covered either way. <laughs> How do you define what
1: is sacred? Well, the the sacred is um the more. And and I have to say it's different for everyday life because that's not true. Everyday life is filled with the more. The you know, M O R E. Right. In every experience, there's the quotidian ordinary, but behind it and surrounding it is the, is the ul- ultimate significance of all life. And so our talking right now is a bit of eternity, because you and I are engaged in a search for truth, and, and we're not opponents. We're not right. having that date. So we are experiencing what Jesus called the kingdom right here and now. And that and so the sacred is infused, but you know, normally there's just noise and we don't hear it, we don't see it, we don't feel it. Um, the way that the believer explains this is that God is speaking to us all the time, but we're not listening. And the sacred is like that. You know, it's always there. But it comes upon you, I think the, um, the philosopher Martin Heidegger said, in, in the muffled fog, when you hear the bell of the church ringing, the strangeness of that situation uh, inter- reintroduces you to the sacred. You needed to take yourself out of the everyday. But when the birth of a child, you know, peak experiences like that, they remind you of the sacred, but the sacred is there every day. The, the the new mother who goes around with the newborn child suddenly experiences the world as completely new. But the world was always completely new.
0: Her world has changed, but that's about it.
1: <laughs> right. So um, the, the the sacred is... The, the way to turn everyday life into the special moments that we experience at the peak times of our lives. Now in Judaism, it's a wonderful practice in Orthodox Judaism, in which every activity has a prayer. Mm-hmm. So that there's a, there, there, you have to say, uh, you have to show gratitude when you go to the bathroom, for example. And the, the prayer is, dear God, uh, you have made me in such a way with all of these openings. And if any one of them closed up, I would die. So I I thank you for the openings that I have. Wow. And so you're turning an act of going to the bathroom as, into a sacred moment. Mm-hmm. And that is what we have to learn to do. I mean, that's a that's a difficult practice. I mean, that's a difficult practice for anyone.
0: In terms of... Us coming together as a society personally I believe we need to redefine what society calls sacred that we need to come to some sort of agreement we need that we need a new social contract we need a contract that the atheists the spiritual but not religious and they're a huge portion of the population the religious and we can all get together and say, okay, in this society, we agree that this, this, this was not touchable. And therefore we will uphold or stay away from doing this, this, and this. We will either do these things or we will, and we will not do these other things. And that this is how we will build our society based on those things. So how do we come to that agreement?
1: Um, I, I, I think I would, I would put this differently. I would not start with human agreement. Um, take the the um uh, the very difficult issue very difficult issue of abortion mm-hmm. now the, the 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 proposition that life is sacred mm-hmm. you would think that would make abortion if not inconceivable altogether it would at least make abortion always very very problematic but you can 't um ask that society comes to an agreement on abortion as your starting point. We know that we, we cannot come to an agreement on abortion as our starting point. So the starting point would have to be the experience of the sacred itself. So what we what we would agree on, and it's not really that we would agree on, we would help each other discover the sacred. We would help each other have the experience of the sacredness of human life. And out of that experience, we would then begin to talk about abortion.
0: Okay, now, how do you have experienced sacredness without the mystical? Because you say you personally don't believe in the mystical.
1: Well, I've experienced the mystical. I mean, not that I don't believe in the mystical. The question, I kept telling myself for a long time that my mystical experiences were made up. Because mm-hmm. I didn't have Alfred North Whitehead's philosophy that helped me understand how the mystical could be real. Uh, Other than the question of God. I mean, that's a a different question. But Whitehead had a way for us to understand knowledge and perception Mm -hmm. from the perception of materialism. So that mystical experiences were actually experiences. They were real. They weren't just made up out of my head, my imagination. I wasn't just having some kind of illusion. Right. Uh, I think you have to clear the decks first and allow people to experience more than materialism by first talking about what's real and Mm -hmm. how to learn things. I think that's a matter of knowledge. And I think that we, 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 we have been set back because we believe that materialism is the only possibility and sensationism, that is the, the idea you gain knowledge only through your senses. Right. That those are the only possible foundations of knowledge. And that's It's not true. And Alfred North Whitehead is just one example, but he's a good one, of of actually demonstrating in a scientifically sophisticated way, he was not anti-science, of course, he was a, very much a scientist, um, uh, of showing that this is consistent, in fact, more consistent with quantum theory, for example, than our usual ways of treating material and what's real. So I think there's a lot of work that has to be done first to sort of clear the decks, to make it possible again to treat mystical experiences, spiritual experiences as real. And beyond the what we call the mystical, I mean, if someone's sitting and listening to a, a beautiful concert and they are transformed, is that a mystical experience or is that just the experience of beauty? Mm-hmm. I think it's just the experience of beauty. I don't think it's any special category called mysticism. And we have these experiences all the time. We have to learn to accept them as real.
0: Okay. So can you say, can you say that we can experience the sacred without the mystical?
1: Well, I mean, I I don't want to don't want to um, sort of have a definitional issue. Okay. You know, um, if if there is a a realm uh, that the religious person has of direct contact with God,
2: right?
1: The best word, the best. Place to use the word mysticism, in my opinion. Okay. Anything else is something else, and mysticism. So okay. when, I, and I've had these experiences, you know, these mystical, mystical experiences in which God is. At, I'm having visions in synagogue, for example. It was a Yom Kippur uh, years ago, in and in Yom Kippur, uh, the day of, of atonement, the, uh, the Jewish person fasts for 24 hours, doesn't drink or eat, and you're pretty lightheaded by the end of that period. I had this vision in synagogue during the mar- what's called the martyrology, in the martyrology was describing people being marched to the gas chambers
2: mm-hmm. in the service.
1: And I had this vision of all of these naked, pregnant women with their translucent babies mm-hmm. marched to the gas chambers. And that was the experience that, unfortunately for me, made me into a pro-life person, which has caused me endless difficulties uh, as a liberal Jew. That—that <laughs> that, I had the feeling that God was speaking directly to me and telling me, this is the truth of abortion. That's a mystical experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. And yet you say you don't believe in God.
1: Right. How re- do you
0: reconcile that? <laughs> I,
1: I I don't I I don't I mean it's not reconcilable. Yeah. I um I'm only after I discovered Alfred North Whitehead could I reopen the question of God again? You know for a, for a while I was going along with David Hume, and you know the only certain things were real and that was that. And you know I had a vision in synagogue it must have just been out of my head uh, and nothing else and it didn't really have any meaning. But I will tell you. That experience, even though I knew on some level that it wasn't true, you know, at that time, I said, no, no, this is not true. It didn't matter. It it was so obviously so that mm-hmm. it changed my life. Wow. So without, so, you know, if you had said, well, how come suddenly you're pro-life? I would have said, well, I was given a message. And if you'd said to me, who sent you the message? <laughs> I, would, I don't have the slightest idea.
0: Okay. Okay. So, in in closing, we've had a really good conversation. I've I've really enjoyed talking to you. How do you see us moving forward in the future, given our vast differences of belief and where the nation or where society is at right now?
1: You mean other than buying my new book?
0: Well, that too. <laughs>
1: I, I think that uh, we've already taken a step forward because um, Heidegger uh, had another saying that he got from the poet that, you know, where the danger is greatest, there the saving light grows, the saving power grows also. Um, we have now experienced a low point. It does And I'm not talking politically, you know, I mean, for Republicans, the Democrats are all liars for Democrats, Republicans are all liars. We have now experienced brokenness. And in the Bible, the experience of brokenness is first. You cannot seek anything until you acknowledge how broken you are.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. As a culture, are now experiencing brokenness, and we know it. We know that there's something fundamentally wrong. On one level, we tell ourselves, no, it's our political opponents, but I think we know better. I think we know that this is deeper than that. And if we don't know it, we'll find out after the next election, because it won't all get better regardless of who wins what.
0: No, it won't.
1: So that is our first step forward, is acknowledging that um, there is something fundamentally wrong. Uh, and that, I think, is the first step. Uh, Once we reach that step, we'll be looking for something new and not just the old arguments recycled.
0: As we as a nation begin to look for something new, something to fix our brokenness, it is my sincerest desire that believers and the non-affiliated will be able to find ways to really hear each other and work together. It's going to take all of us. We need each other, and maybe that's what God is trying to show us. Maybe that's the new thing we need. Thank you for joining me. And I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Professor Bruce Ledowitz. Please join me next time as I continue to explore how we define sacred in the 21st century.